Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 this morning, we'll be looking at God, our refuge from this psalm. God is a refuge, a place we can hide. And what we're going to see together this morning is that God protects his people, so we never need to fear. God protects his people, so we never need to fear. I'll begin reading Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, on a week like this, where really for a couple of weeks before, you're kind of watching images and also seeing the destruction, we're reminded really of how little control we have over life and what goes on around us. If you're in the worst path of the storm, you experience it in a different way, but it's a reminder to us of really that we need someone bigger and stronger to protect us. And many of you remember some uh, 30 years ago when Hurricane Hugo came toward Charleston. And on that night, around midnight, just north of Charleston, Hugo hit the shore, and when it hit, it came with a fury. And I've heard multiple people here say, if, if a storm like that comes again, I'm not, I am not sticking around for, for, for anything like that again. It was such a, a terrifying long wait, both for the storm, during the storm, and then after the storm. When Hugo hit with a Category 4 Uh, hurricane force winds, 135 to 40 mile an hour winds. It was pretty devastating in terms of the destruction that it brought. And there are places, people's buildings, lives that were never the same after that. And there are moments that you can remember of, of the destruction there as you look around or you remember, and some of you remember personally that what that time was like in our community as the devastation of that storm hit. You walk down a Market Street and it looks nothing like Market Street looks today. Just complete devastation. This is like something almost out of the Civil War because they're black and white photos. It's a dark, dark day. Damage in the end, 5.9 billion in our state, 35 lives claimed. It was a day that's kind of marked in infamy and three decades later people still remember like it is yesterday. So the question I have for us is where do you run when there's nowhere to hide, when there's nowhere you can go to be safe. And as devastating as the results from a natural disaster like Hugo are, often the results of the storms of life are as or more devastating, emotionally, personally, spiritually. As you experience the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of conflict, the brokenness of family relationships, the brokenness that lies in your own heart and sometimes seem all, seems almost overwhelming. Where do we run when there's nowhere to hide? The descriptions that are in Psalm 46 are just incredible. 
Literally, mountains shake and fall into the sea and disappear. And the psalmist says, we don't need to fear. I mean, the destruction of that kind of disaster is hard to fathom. It's literally something wiped off the map. Yet we see here today that for those who know God, who know the character of God, who know the activity of God, the work of God in our world today, there is no reason to fear no matter what comes. How can this be possible? Well, the Bible is a little bit like, I don't know, like a reporter's notebook. It's like you're taking notes, and, and as you track through Scripture, you get different pieces of the character of God. You see in one place God is creator, another God is judge, another God is love, and you see these different pictures of God. And Psalm 46 gives us kind of colors in the lines of God's character as a protector of his people. What we see here is a God who is immensely powerful. He can, with a word, wipe a mountain from the map. Yet also a God who is remarkably gentle and protective, who cares for people. This means that when you're protected by a God who's this powerful, nothing can touch you when God says no. And it also means that God will never misuse or abuse his power in a way that harms us. An infinitely powerful being who is also perfectly gentle. What an unbelievably good thing to imagine. Could it actually be true? And so we start with this question because this Psalm introduces this question to us, and the question is, who in the world is God, or who is God as he reveals himself to be? God's record of himself tells us that we cannot know him apart from his word. And Psalm 46 tells us that God is a God who is a powerful protector. We look at the adjectives used to describe God in this psalm. He's a refuge. God is our strength. God is a fortress. What we have are kind of words, pile upon words, pile upon words to describe to us a remarkably powerful protector. There's a picture of, of, of stability and security on one hand and then this terrifying power on the other hand. We kind of walk through life. It's like there's this umbrella over us and we walk through life almost unaware of all the threats around us. I heard someone say one time that, that, that if you actually lived in mind of everything that could go wrong, you would go insane. Because you couldn't deal with the level of fear and anxiety that would introduce. Yet God says over and over in his word that as we walk through life, he is going before us, surrounding us, and protecting us. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3.3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Isaiah 41, 10 and 11. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. When the God of the universe fights for his people, there is nothing that we need to fear. He is a remarkably powerful protector. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples. He's telling them that, that very difficult days will come. He said in the future that there will be wars and persecution. You'll be delivered up by even parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. This sounds absolutely terrible, but then in the same breath, he makes this unbelievable promise. He says, not a hair of your head will perish. And so what he's saying here is the kind of death that he's talking about isn't merely physical death. But the people of God are protected eternally, absolutely. 
He's saying that no matter what someone does to you physically, they cannot harm you spiritually when you are protected by the God of the universe. Paul gets at this idea in 1 Corinthians 15. He kind of talks a long time about resurrection, and he says death is swallowed up in victory. Death and victory don't go together. And then he kind of sings this song, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is a powerful protector. And brothers and sisters, when the triune Father, Son, and Spirit of the universe are protecting you, you don't need to fear. There's no more, no being in the universe even close to as powerful as our God. It's why the song says, no power of hell, no fear of man can ever pluck me from God's hand. God is a remarkably powerful protector. He's also a safe hiding place. Fortresses have uh, largely gone out of style. In other words, they aren't really something we use that much anymore because they can't really protect you from what's dangerous in the world. I mean, we, we kind of have, we have firewalls that are kind of, I don't know, virtual fortresses or maybe kind of long-range ballistic missiles to intercept other long-range missiles. But everyone needs a safe place, whether it's an actual fortress or a virtual fortress. Well, this particular fortress is a castle built in medieval Europe, the, the Wartburg, or as Germans say it, the, the Wartburg. It sits on a 1,350-foot precipice. In other words, it's, it's virtually impossible to climb. There's only one way to access this, and this is over a drawbridge. You can't really attack this fortress. We don't have a lot of these sitting around our land for very good reasons, we're thankful. But this particular fortress provided a safe place for Martin Luther. Now, you may or may not know of Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk who became convicted about the abuses of power that he saw in the, in the church. And so he one day nailed something called the 95 Theses to a door in Wittenberg, the town he lived in. And he didn't know what he was setting off, but he was starting a fire. And suddenly everyone is after his head. Because when he's calling out these abuses of powers, everyone is coming after him. And over time, as he began to reign, he spent two years hiding in that castle. And he would grow discouraged and depressed. And when he was discouraged, he would say to one of his friends, let's sing a song together. And the song they would sing is this psalm, Psalm 46. And he wrote it in German, but you know it in English. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never fade. You know the song, and it's a song that he would sing when he was discouraged. He would go to this psalm because the Lord is a safe place where you can hide when you're in danger physically, when you're in danger spiritually or emotionally. Proverbs 18.10 tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous person runs into it and is safe. It's like if you know God, you've got the ultimate insurance policy. Nothing can touch you there. The Lord is a place of immense power, a very present help in trouble. And often we think of that trouble outside us, like the people who are hunting down Martin Luther or a storm coming along the coast. But sometimes the trouble that hunts us down is inside us, isn't it? Sometimes the darkness in our own mind and our own heart is much more threatening than anything around us but God can protect us even in the midst of our own sin and foolishness. So if God is this kind of protector, how does his character manifest itself in our lives? What does God do? 
Well, you track through this psalm and look carefully not only at who God is, but what he does, you see some incredible things. The Lord helps us in trouble. He gives us courage. He melts the earth. He brings desolations. He makes wars cease. Now, these things kind of sound like they're not the same. He melts the earth and he protects us. And so we've got these kind of twin pictures because God, the creator, is the only being powerful enough to actually control creation. He rules everything, including creation itself. God spoke the universe into being by the word of his power. And Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ himself today upholds the world by his word, by the word of his power. So the same creative power in Genesis 1 and 2 is on display and at work in our world today. Why is it that some storm for causes that maybe we can explain or maybe we can't form somewhere out at sea and drifts in toward land? There are a lot of causes for this, meteorolog- meteorolog- meteorologically speaking, if that's how you say that. We can, you guys can scri- scri- scrub that one later. But there are a lot of causes for it. But ultimately, the cause of all things is God, the creator, the one who speaks and causes the foundations of the earth to tremble. We know that the effects of creation, like in our own lives, are warped by the brokenness of creation. Yet God still reigns over everything. The sun rises. Because God lifts it up, the sun sets because God puts it to bed. The rain comes because God feeds his creatures. The sun comes out because he provides warmth and comfort. Why do we pray for God's mercy in the storm? Because we know ultimately God controls the storm. We pray for protection because God rules creation. He brings desolations on the earth, but he also protects his people. He not only rules creation, he rules the nations themselves. Every civilization has power centers. So if I were to say to you the Greek Empire, you might think of Athens and Sparta. If I were to think, say, the Roman Empire, that one's easy, Rome, Rome. Or the British Empire, London, or today we think of, I don't know, Washington, D.C., whether you like it or not, or maybe New York or or L.A., Every civilization has kind of its power centers. Yet God's word tells us that there is another city, an ultimate power center. What we see here is the city of God. It's the vision of this city that motivates and moves God's people throughout history. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have kind of a record of a bunch of different people in in, in the Bible in history. You have uh, Noah, you have Moses, you have Abraham, David, Samson, uh, many more. And as you walk through these lives, they're the people, they're, they're known as heroes of the faith, people who did amazing things for God. But as you look at each of their lives, and as you go to the record of scripture, you see not only did they do amazing things, they had amazing failures. Noah, immediately after the flood, sins with his daughters. Moses, receives the law of God on the mountain. Not long after, breaks God's law and can't enter the promised land. David, a man after God's own heart. Lust commits adultery. And murder. Samson delivers God's people, yet himself is an immoral man deep in his heart. You see, what unites these people in the end isn't that they're such great people. What you see over and over and over in Hebrews 11 is this. By faith, Moses. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. By faith, David. The thing that united them that was their faith, their remarkable, unshakable faith in a living God. Faith unites people from different eras, different cities, different places in the globe today. And then right in the heart of Hebrews 11, we read these verses. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All God's people look for, for this city, this eternal city, the city of God. Today, people worship this morning all across, all across the globe in villages, towns, cities of all sizes. But one day, we'll all be in the same city, singing the same songs, worshiping the same God. Genesis 2 tells us about creation, the Garden of Eden. And through the middle of the Garden of Eden runs a river, and this river branches out into four parts. Well, then we get to Revelation, and God tells us that this river runs through the city of God. So in Hebrews 11, when people are, are looking to this, you have this picture of this city. Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So you've got this unbelievable imagery running throughout Scripture. You've got the river in the Garden of Eden. You've got God's people in Hebrews looking for a city. And in Revelation, they get to that city. And in that city is that river. There's this thread of God's redemptive love for God's people running throughout Scripture. And right here in the center of it all, Psalm 46 drops a little nugget and says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's that river. And it's here in the Old Testament. It's a day we're looking forward to, but it's here. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. There's this remarkable contrast. God is there. She cannot be moved. She's unshakable. But in verse 6, the nations rage and kingdoms totter. So on the one hand, we have the immovable, unshakable, eternal city of God. And on the other hand, we have nations, cities of this earth, crumbling and falling one after the other. Whether you hate one political party or the other or both, you don't need to fear. We don't live for this city, this place, this life. We live for a beautiful eternal city and a river runs through it from the throne of God. So even when trouble threatens us in this life, we can rest secure knowing we have a home where nothing can threaten us. Nations in this world will rage against each other. But that place, that river, is a river of healing. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's coming a day when God is going to set this all right. All this mess that you see around you, all that we worry about and can't do a thing about, God will set it all right. And on that day, there will be no more conflict, no more strife, no more heartache, because we will be fully and finally in God's perfect kingdom, in the perfect city, with a perfect God. We don't even need light. You don't need any lamp because the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There is a place, there is a city, and it is reserved for you. John 14, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's saying that he's going to leave. And when he leaves, they'll feel abandoned. But they don't need to fear because he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a room for you. And when I go, you will come and you will be with me, that where I am, you may be also. That city is a beautiful place. It's a place I want to go. It's a refuge we all need. And the thing we need more than anything is a refuge from not just the chaos around us, but the evil inside us. You see, our greatest problem is not the evil out there, It's this old guy right in here. 
And Jesus says there's only one way to that city to deal with that problem. Jesus says, same passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That city waits. It's a perfect refuge where nothing can touch us. And yet Jesus Christ and him alone is the only path to that city. And if you're here this morning and you're on a different path, following a different master or a different voice, would you trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save you from your sin and take you to that safe place? Well, if this is who God is and what God does, how then do we respond to who God is? There are a couple of basic responses here. We have the response of God's people, but then we also have a response from the nations that, that rage against God, who don't know God. And we see that if you resist God, you will melt before God's judgment. There's this remarkable picture. Nations rage, but kingdoms totter. God speaks, the earth melts. This echoes Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. God's power is so great that there's this infinite gap between the most powerful nations of the earth and the infinite power of the creator God. And to resist God is a guarantee that one day this infinitely powerful God will no longer be merciful, but will crush those nations. So we respond by resisting and then we will melt or we can fear nothing. Can you imagine fearing nothing? I mean, nothing. I mean, hearing the wind whistle outside your house and having no fear. We have a beautiful picture of this response of the people of God. In verse 10, there's this command, be still and know that I am God. We were told that about 15 times in the choir song today. So just pause for a minute. Think about the godness of God. The way God puts it is that he has us, all y'all, in the palm of his hand. And when he holds you there, nothing can touch you there. Nothing can you remove you from the grip of this infinitely powerful God. As I was thinking about this this week, I'm like, I'm real good at be busy, be working, be active, be serving, be ministering, be still. We're not good at this. And yet God says, For all of us, the way to know me isn't through activity, isn't through busyness, isn't through mindless hamster wheel running through life. It is pausing, thinking, considering that I am God. I am a fortress. I am a refuge. I am a protector. I am a safe place. Be still and know me, the God of the universe. What do you fear? I mean, even if you're not a fearful person, as in like someone who's kind of timid or something like, everyone has fears. And you might not say it like, I'm afraid, but you think about like if you're not advancing fast enough in, in your career, that's, you, you, you fear that. Or you fear how your kids are turning out or might turn out or did turn out. 
or you fear 2020 election cycle or you fear what's going to happen tomorrow. What kind of world am I going to leave my kids? You fear that your parents won't give you enough freedom and that you can't go out and do the things that you want to do. We all walk through life with fear. So a world where no matter what happens, even if everything crumbles, melts, and falls into the sea and you do not fear, feels impossible. And yet that is exactly what God says. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else. Therefore, we will not fear, verse 2, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. If the worst impossible, the worst possible thing happens to you, you do not need to fear if God is your refuge and strength. So you can melt before God's judgment, fear nothing, and worship this God. In the end, verse 10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God's protection of us isn't so much to convince us of how amazing we are. It's to convince us of the beauty, majesty, protective power of God, that a God could do this for us. People who truly experience and know the love of the Father respond by saying, God is so amazing. God is so great. A God who can do this is infinitely worthy of worship. What an amazing God that could actually love and care for a wretch like me. And it moves our hearts to respond in worship. Because a God who's this powerful, who's this infinite, who's this immense, who has this kind of creative power, who cares personally for me, is absolutely impossible. If I were that big, if I were that bad, and I were that powerful, I wouldn't give a thought to you. And you wouldn't to me either. Yet this God who is infinitely powerful is also infinitely loving. This creator God who spoke the world into being, the one who by whom speaks and the earth melts, the same God loves us, Psalm 103 says, as a father loves his children. He is near to the brokenhearted. He will not crush the bruised reed. God is a God of compassion, a God of love, and a God of mercy. And when we stand back and we know that God is God and we sense the immensity of God, and then we begin to think of the way that that immense God comes close and loves us, this moves us to worship. It sounds sort of disrespectful to see that someone like that is my friend. That's exactly what God is. Abraham is a friend of God, and through Jesus, we are too. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith, maybe even worship. Praise God for who he is. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.